Welcome to The Transformationist. I'm Tash McGill and this is part two of our interview with Jeff Crabtree. Um, part one, there are bastards everywhere, um, unpacked his research. This part two unpacks what happens as a result, where do we go and how, how are we changed, what do we need to look for uh, in terms of supporting and facilitating a broader systemic change. In part one, and if you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to go back and take a listen, but in part one, I also told you my own most recent experience of sexual harassment and the layers of shame that it left me with. I also wanted to talk to you briefly about what I was able to do and what so many people are not. I'm still not sure if it was the right or the wrong thing, but uh, the morning after I had an unwelcome visitor um, and uh, on the, was on the receiving end of that harassment for a few days. Um, I took advantage of the fact that I had an unusual situation where I was able to determine what happened with the story next. I could have exposed the person to the whole group and shamed them into an apology, um, or I could have taken an opportunity to hopefully try and bring about some sort of substantive change to examine or explore you know, what was going on in that person's world. To this day, I don't know if I regret the choice I made, uh, in terms of trying to find a redemptive pathway for him. I think oftentimes um, it's very easy, particularly in the light of um, people who have any kind of spiritual or moral authority, um, it's really easy to look for redemption, um, but often we look for the redemption of the perpetrator at the expense of the suffering of the victim. And I don't like to couch myself as a victim um, particularly often, and so I had to walk this fine line of how do I try and create opportunities for him to A, not get away with it and have to own up to the behavior, B, make sure no one else suffers the same kind of pressure um, or harassment that I do, especially because they may not have had the aptitude or the courage to actually push back and say no. Uh, and third, how do I make sure that there's a pathway or an opportunity here um, for things to change? I am the transformationist after all. In the end, the path that I chose was one of invitation. I asked some of my close friends to confront him um, with me in an appropriate way, um, to let him know that his behavior and the inappropriateness of it had been made known to a larger group, and then offered him some opportunities to make amends, to choose some paths of corrective action, um, things that would ensure that other people would be safe if he was out on the road um, with other vulnerable women. It was a hard road and it was one that was disappointing in the end um, because like so many people unfortunately um, who find themselves in the situation of being a perpetrator um, there was reluctance and reticence to own up to the behavior um, to take any kind of affirmative action um, and that ended up meaning that whilst you don't want to be in a position of holding a threat over somebody's head, you also end up saying, what do I do to make sure that the redemption of the perpetrator doesn't overtake the protection of any other people or any other potential victims that may exist in the future? Um, so I did what I felt I needed to do in order to protect other people. And along the way, you know what happened? The story of what happened to me got out amongst a group of people in the community. And the next thing you know, 
people are telling my story, people are communicating on behalf of others and making decisions. And I think that's the most dangerous thing, the most frustrating thing about not having systems and structures within industries to support appropriate response on behalf of people who experience sexual harassment. The one thing I wanted to do was own my story. I wanted to own my power. I wanted to keep a hold of my ability to be the person who told the story. So in every particular instance, even though it was traumatic to have to relive it, if there was the opportunity where somebody needed to know what happened, whether it was employers or contractors or people who were going to put this person in charge of other young women, um, I stepped up and said, I will be the person that tells the story because it's my story and I don't want the narrative um, being told by anybody else. And that's that's really difficult and it's really challenging. Um, and it's only something that I think I was able to do because I have had so much previous awful experience of the other end of what it's like to be victimized at the end of a bully, right? Because that's actually what it is. And that's what we unpacked in episode one. This is bullying. It's intimidation and it's fear. So that's what happened. Can I tell you whether or not that person has offended again? I cannot. Can I tell you whether or not that person has found themselves in the willing employ of any of the people that I spoke to? He has not. Do I hope he's changed? Yes, I do. Will I ever work with him or trust him again? It is highly unlikely. And that is the reality of how destructive sexual harassment and intimidation and bullying can be in our systems and societies. The difference is for me is that my voice is loud enough and strong enough now going on two and a half years later that I'm able to stand up for myself. Not everybody is able to do that. I was also lucky enough to have friends with me at the time that I had enough vulnerability with that I could invite them into what for me was a deeply shameful experience, but I could invite them into it, conscript them into helping me navigate the way forward. And that is not the reality for most people who experience this kind of intimidation, bullying, harassment, abuse or assault. For most people who experience this assault, they are alone and they feel alone, and the overwhelming shame that they then have to either invite people into or share with others is crippling. I know it because I've been there myself, even as somebody who considers themselves to be relatively strong and competent. And so that's why, again, this systemic change has to happen, and we have to keep moving forward. We can't let ourselves escape into a world of thinking that if you arrest one person, that you have fixed it, because there is always another one. There's always one more. There's always somebody hiding behind somebody else, and there is always somebody who's willing to cover it up. There is always somebody who's willing to assume the best, to say, oh, it was just a misunderstanding because that's how indoctrinated into systems of patriarchy and power we have become. So if we want to dismantle it, we have to dismantle it in our own lives first. We have to dismantle it in our own communities, in our own businesses. We have to dismantle it in every systemic organization that we find ourselves in the midst of. And that is my challenge and my invitation to you to become a transformationist in this space by dismantling power imbalance, dismantling where you see intimidation having a field. For now, let's dive into the second half of this conversation with Jeff. Uh, what I am really interested in and um, in understanding from your perspective, uh, how has how has doing this project, how has it changed you? Because obviously you went in not expecting necessarily to discover this story, but as you discovered this story, and now it's leading you to 
you know, a, a proposed larger research project. So what's the, what's the change? Has it, has it, is it that it's brought focus? Has it been catalytic oh. for you? Or, or how do you land at wanting to now press on with this exploration? I speak, yes. Okay, so I, I think I agree it's catalytic. Um, I, 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 I totally agree with that. I think, um, you know, because the catalyst is the thing that helps the explosion happen, I think. Isn't that mm-hmm. the way to mm-hmm. But if it wasn't for Beneath the Glass Ceiling and if it wasn't for The Guardian and the Sydney Morning Herald journals and if it wasn't for Jaguar Jones and if it wasn't for, yeah, um, you know, if it wasn't for those Sony staff who, you know, so brave and and if it wasn't for a concerted effort amongst journalists and if it wasn't for the, my PR, the person who did PR, you know, so I go, yeah, it's catalytic, but we, it has to have all of it. Well, you need all of you need all of the ingredients for the chemical reaction, right? Exactly. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. You need all the ingredients for the chemical reaction, and you know, I um, how has it changed me? Like profoundly. Um, you can't sit across the room from a young woman who's telling a story, and I've been um, horrendously treated. Um, you know, and they face not just a, you know, like the, the moment, but there's a trauma around sexual harassment. It's a huge trauma, um, one that I um, have never experienced because I've never been sexually harassed. And, of course, one that I think is very rare for men to experience. I mean, I've experienced the trauma of workplace harassment. So that's the closest I come to it. In fact, I've endured a sort of a five-year episode of a workplace bullying of the highest magnitude, which in, in in part was part of the reason I decided to study mm. this. <clears throat> so I have that I have that part of me can, that my experience connects connected with those people with those women on that level. But you can't sit in the room with these people, and uh, and so many of my participants were. At some point, were um, lost emotional control. They bre- would break down and cry or weep. You can't. You can't sit in the room and not be changed forever. Mm. So I'm changed forever by that. Like I, um, I'm deeply, deeply grateful to the, all the people who came forward, because it's a huge risk for them, because they have to revisit, relive. Get maybe re, be re-traumatised, you know. I mean, they don't know who I am, so they don't know whether they can trust the processes that are behind me. <clears throat> there are processes behind it. When you talk about the authenticity of research, the legal basis of it, it's to do with the rigour. It's to do with the fact that it's not just me. There are all of these peop- layers of procedure and layers of people who then review the material. Mm. Um, and so, you know, my I had, as it happens, three different supervisors who looked, who reviewed my material. And then, of course, there's the research integrity part of the university who are monitoring your work and you have to get ethical approval. And that takes a couple of months if you're pr- and you have to go through this rigorous approach to get ethics. And then, of course, <clears throat> they're on to you in terms of data management, how you manage the data, where is it housed, what are you doing? And they come back to you and go, have you done what you said you were going to do, and uh, and then there's the examination process where three independent academics from around the world closely examine your work and then offer their opinion and their thoughts. So you know that's what research brings, the legitimacy of the fact that oh, this is, as you say, it's not anecdotal. 
Um, but you know, people don't know that's the pro that don't know what's going on. So they don't know whether they can trust that process. They don't know whether they can trust me. They've got the university brand on a, on a consent form, right? You know, on advertising, but they don't. So I'm grateful to those people, forever grateful to them. But I think, but part of it is for me, I, it opened my eyes to the extent and the depth of the suffering and the oppression of, of of the women in the music industry, and I, by extension, women. In, in creative industries and then by extension women everywhere. I'd love to explore you talked about how in you talked about how the experiences and the the reality of the constructs that that enable this kind of harassment to happen are gendered. And and I think there was nothing surprising. I now this is an anecdotal story, but when the Me Too movement emerged um, in 2017, there was nothing surprising to me or to any of my female friends about that. And we all knew that it was there. Um, and yet, conversely, I think there had there have been uh, uh, epochs, one might say, of revelatory experience for men on the other side to realise how prolific some of those behaviours are, whether they are part of the system or simply exist within the system. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in how that, in how that revelation um, has, has impacted you. Yeah, I've sort of examined my own behaviour and go back and go, wow, have I behaved badly in the past? Mm. Um, I mean, that was the first, that's the first step and I go, I sort of go back through my own behaviour and go, well, I don't know, I think I'm, I sort of think I was okay. But, you know, I may not have been um, because, you know, some people may have felt some of the, some of the behaviour that I've, um, some of my behaviour might have been abuse of, abuse, and of, abuse of power. Try not to be that person, you know. You, I, uh, but I've certainly sort of interrogated my own behaviour. Can't say that I've sexually harassed anybody. I, you know, those I, I feel, um, you know, pretty clear on that on that score. Mm -hmm, mm. Um, however, I'm a, however, I'm a beneficiary of patriarchy. I'm a beneficiary, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so there's the, there was this whole thing. Like, in fact, I had to write. I wrote about it in the thesis. You know, I, I, in my thesis, I said, you know, I have to own up to being an old white man. I have to own up to being an old white man. Ex exposing a problem that I believe is actually caused by systems that are put in place by all white men. <clears throat> so I'm um, a beneficiary of, I remain a beneficiary of the, um, the, the patriarchy, which as women uh, will testify has existed for centuries, um, a system of in which, you know, um, men seem to exert, not seem to, men actually exert greater power and have greater influence and are able to subordinate and dominate women across uh, and across the entire breadth of social institutions. It's something that's breathtaking in its scope, actually. Mm -hmm. And because um, it's systemic, we often don't have the eyes to uh, see or perceive exactly, exactly how embedded in our social constructs uh, those elements are. Right. I mean, we all live in our own heads. Mm. So, you know, if, if you're a man listening to this podcast, you go, what, have you suddenly become a feminist? And I go, you know, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's true if that's what you think feminist is. I would actually describe a feminist as an equalitarian, mm -hmm. which is <laughs> somebody who just is arguing for 
as uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, we don't we don't ask for special treatment. We just ask that you get off our necks. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, is it not true that women are human beings and therefore of equal value and equal dignity and of equal rights to men? Right. And if you accept that as the as the foundational premise, then and then when you look at where women are at in terms of equality, access, etc., uh, etc., et pay, remuneration, um, then you have to conclude that the equality that they possess is theoretical. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a th- with the, uh, with we, everybody, I think everybody in Western country would subscribe to the equality of women. Well, I'd like to talk about what happens if if we don't reset the context so you 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 know you outline them really carefully um uh the 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 imbalance of power that allows for harassment to happen um what happens if we don't change those dynamics what what do we what do we stand to now that we're aware of the problem you know and even talking in one vertical but but now that we're now that we have this data that validates a story that's that's been anecdotal it's no longer the words of women um, that exist in a language in a world of women only it's now something that's a public shared narrative where we say okay actually we've recognized this problem what happens if we don't reset the power imbalance what do we what do we risk oh we risk to we fail um we fail to build a better world because what we're doing is we've we're disempowering and disregarding and ignoring half the population which means half the potential problems the half attempt, half the potential solutions to our problems are being ignored because the the thinking that goes on inside the female brain is um, arguably uh, some now some psychologists and some neuroscientists have argued that the, the way that women think is different than the way men think, and I think you know that's the whole battle of the sexes thing, and there's a kind of a populist version of that: men are from Mars, women are from Venus. You know, mm-hmm. da da da. Um, but the um, uh, but if, and if that's true, if that there are if that there are because there are some fundamental differences in the structure of female brains. There are more, for example, there are more connections between left and right brain in a female mm-hmm. brain. The corpus callosum is thicker, um, and uh, and if that, those physiological structures mean that women think differently, it is not better or worse. It's different. But what that means is. Um, we're we're just cutting ourselves off from all of these possibilities that emerge out of different kinds of thinking, which then dooms humanity at every level. It dooms us as a as a as a as a race, a human race. It dooms us as you know on a national level or on a cultural level. It dooms us to run down the same old paths that we've always run down. And, they're, and thereby missing out <coughs> on what could be um, incredible solutions to the problems that we face. So it's, if we don't change it, we risk, we, 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 we risk de- our society degenerating in, what we, in the kind of ways that we currently see in Ukraine, mm. which is a re- it's a, literally a replay of World War II where with a powerful authoritarian leader declare, making declarations about another 
country that are just historically not at all true, not ba- have no basis in fact, um, as an excuse for armed expansion. So we're seeing this the same thing. Now, some people are going to listen to this and go, that's a really objectionable interpretation, Jeff, <laughs> of, of these events and, you know, that Mr. Putin has a point and a whole bunch of other things, and I would urge those people to examine the, the, the historical precedent carefully mm. because I know it may, be disturbing, it may be disturbing to some to hear that, but in actual fact we are seeing history repeating itself. And which, so in essence, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, which it has a tendency to do unless we are able to proactively and thoughtfully unpack the data from previous lessons and reapply them to a new future. Yeah, and if indeed neuroscientists, neurocognitive scientists, their assertions, their their hypotheses about the fact that women, the, the processes and the, the nature of women's thinking, cognition is different, then we're ignoring something of enormous value. Mm-hmm. We're ignoring, possi- we're completely shutting ourselves off to all of these possibilities that it could be utterly game-changing. You know, Which is powerful. Um, I want to shift gears slightly to... Yeah to the momentum of change, the momentum of transformation, uh, because there are some things that happened uh, along the way as the Me Too movement was happening or or sort of expanding uh, alongside your research project. It came and it also went quite quickly. You know, there were there were several largely public scandals, not dissimilar to the Sony, you know, episode where where changes were made, people were removed from positions and and things then as far as the public narrative kind of fade off. We get we then get move on to the next headline. We then, you know, go on. uh, We go on to the next crises. And yet the reality of change is that there's research which then was interrogated, which then leads to more research and more unpacking before necessarily you get to any sort of systemic cultural shift whereby you can say we have adequately or appropriately shifted culture in such a way that we have we have resolved or diminished this problem. Uh, it would be really easy as an observer from the outside to say, oh, okay, well, it was that bad guy or it was that human who was doing bad behavior, but now that they're removed from the system, the system is somehow healed or better or less corrupt than it was before. So I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing your thoughts and unpacking what the momentum of transformation looks like as, as this story continues to, to unfold, but perhaps less in the public eye. It's a complex problem in the creative industries because it's not there are large companies that are large players that have outsized impact on the uh, on parts of the industry like Sony like Warner like Universal um, but they are only a part of the they only a, a part of the cluster of what makes up a music industry and if you uh, if you actually start to gather if you can gather an appreciation of what the music industry <coughs> actually is in economically and socially, then the best way to describe it is as a, a large, um, amorphous, constantly coalescing um, set of businesses, most of them small businesses, many of them startups, many of them sole traders, a few of them like partnerships or small companies, 
many of them employing maybe three to four people, five people at most. And so it's incredibly, um, as an industry, incredibly fragmented. So uh, the person who plays you know, at the pub on Friday night, Saturday night, might never meet somebody from Sony Music, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, or then they might, you know, and then there's an artist in Australia called Vance Joy who was a busker. So um, at Tones and I, there's uh, another case in point, a busker. She was a busker in Byron Bay. Um, Vance Joy was a busker, I think, on the streets of Melbourne and literally – uh, he was his, he was busking and uh, a very influential a couple who were very influential now in the music industry heard him and signed him to their nascent label. Uh, and I mean, I think they signed him to the ma- to their management company in Melbourne, and and then he became a worldwide phenomenon. So, and that's. I mean, that's the music industry. It's fragmented. There could have been another busker on that corner that day, and that would have wouldn't have happened. Mm. Or he could have been a busker on that corner, and that, that couple might never have walked past. You know. So, um, so if you can imagine, and of course those, and then those possibilities are the sort of the legend stories that every if you're a busker, I guess you aspire to. But I mean, you know, you've got to think like there are, in all likelihood. In Australia and New Zealand, literally thousands of people involved in music making, but just in various levels and at various. So and so, there's not like you can go to. So if you've got a problem in the banking industry, there are how many major banks? Three, four, five. Right. Yeah. And then they employing. I mean, in Australia, the major banks are employing thirty thousand, thirty-four thousand people each. So, so you've got you know four banks and they're employing 30 or 40,000 people each you can create a lot of social change by actually making policy change in those institutions right but when it's and when it's a, a free for all when there's no it's where do you target mm-hmm. who do you target mm. um, musicians don't have a union they don't have a union in New Zealand. They're a part of uh, uh, another union in New Zealand who are te- technically part of it. I don't think any musician in New Zealand is in, a, is in that union. Uh, um, um, the Musicians Union in Australia still exists, but last time I looked at it, which was about three years ago, its bank balance was $84,000 and it employed somebody one day a week. Right. Um, the, uh, there is a union in Australia, the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance, that is attempting to create a musician's part of its mm-hmm. uh, of its um, activities because the, um, that union represents as it says media entertainment and art so there's actors equity is in there so that's all the actors then um, journalists are in there um, uh, uh, sporting personalities are in there um, the entertainment industry workers like you know the crew the workforce the tech workforce are in there so they've got so that's an alliance of, of of different areas of union activity. So they've got some muscle because they've got all of those members, but they don't necessarily act um, together on projects like this. Right. But you know? there is something in there then about the observation that that within any sector or industry, having organisational structures within that industry makes it easier to affect reasonable culture change and without yeah. those structures then you can't you can't do it 
which yeah, is a, well, which yeah. is an interesting lesson then to say how do we go about solving problems that are cultural yep. problems outside of outside of uh, policy specific change. Yeah. So I thought about this a lot, and um, and because I identified that as being the problem. I mean, I think making bringing cultural change, firing a couple of people in a major record label isn't going to bring cultural change. Mm. But what will bring cultural change is changing is ch- is changing ultimately all of the toxic people, or the people who endorse that toxic behaviour have either got to change and demonstrate that they've changed, or they'll be le- or they have to go. Right. I think in the case of an industry where, uh, with huge power imbalance, where there's where there's bad behaviour going on, I think I didn't put this into the into the research report, but I think somebody's got to go to jail. I think you've got to have a Harvey Weinstein moment, and and the reason you have to have a Harvey Weinstein moment is you the reason people I know this sounds terrible, but I think. It's part of the cross-section of the, of the human nature. People will only, they behave well when people, are, when they feel like they're being watched. Yeah. And when, and then there's a lot of people who behave well when they're not being watched. Mm-hmm. Right? But then there's a significant number of people who, if they're not being watched, they look around, I'm not being watched, then they, then well, they don't judging, behave well. They're judging risk, right? Risk yeah, they're versus, judging risk. And yeah. it's the same kind, it's exactly the same kind of thing as a shoplifter knowing whether you you know like a, it's it's the same I know it seems like a terrible equation to make what you're equating sexual assault with a shoplifter in part it's can I get away with it mm-hmm. whether it's shoplifting or sexual assault yeah or, which which is my has been my person my personal experience of uh, harassment was that it was somebody who believed they could get away with it. Because the context was the context was such that they thought nobody was watching. Yeah. So we need some we need mechanisms in which people can report mm. um, that allow for a kind of a process. Mm-hmm. That what? is, well, I mean, it is, here's the thing, you know, because it's not just it's not just. So in support in Australia, Support Act have got a hotline where you can report sexual harassment. I'm not sure what happens to the information. I don't know what happens to the information. But the thing about it is sexual harassment is a crime. It's a crime in New Zealand. It's a crime in Australia. Some, and, of course, um, so is workplace harassment. Of course, it's notoriously difficult to get a conviction. Um, sexual assault is a crime in New Zealand. It's a crime everywhere in you know, most, most Western countries. So, But it's notoriously difficult to get a conviction. Mm. Um, and of course, there are cases where um, a, there've been a there's been a pernicious accusation in order to, you know, to just aggravate somebody, where people have been accused of sexual assault and have been found not guilty after the judicial process. That is, were they found not guilty because the court process, because the the standard of evidence was mm. um, insufficient, or were they found not guilty because in fact they weren't guilty? And it was a vexatious complaint. So the estimates are that one in twenty complaints are vexatious, which is why the which is again there'll be some people listening to this podcast who hate to hear that. Um, but you know, in the cross section of humanity, in which men and women I consider to be equal, it just means that women are also equally capable of being vexatious as men. 
that is, there's a, there's a proportion of women who are capable of being bastards in the same way that there are a proportion of men who are capable of being bastards. That may well be controversial, but just um, and I'm and I'm sure there will be women listening to this who go, "Man, I thought you were an ally," and I am. But the but the reality of human nature is it's like a bell curve, and there are mm-hmm. people who act, people who act with nobility. Um, who are men and there are people who act with nobility who are women and then there are people who act ignobly men and women both mm-hmm. and so well um, the answer to patriarchy is not to replace it with matriarchy because you'll still have the same expression of power imbalance that leads to the ability to abuse yeah. and so yeah. wherever that exists is it's still there and i think you know as as women as women we have to be careful to not we have to be careful to not assume that we have a moral high ground simply because collectively we have been the oppressed yeah i am um, i'm of the yes and and because uh, i'm well aware that there's in the, in the feminist discourse there are people who regard what i've just said as incredibly controversial mm. but, and they and what they point to is the fact that look right mo- right now most of the abusers are men yeah not you know 90 percent you know the abuse is is men on women, and 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 I agree with that statistic. Their observation is absolutely correct, but then I would say it's because at the moment they're holding all the power, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so they're getting and then they're getting away with it. And uh, and so I, 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 you know, I'm a big believer in equality, but as as you say, matriarch is not the answer. Um, so um, so in the matter of dealing with a fragmented industry, how do you deal with sexual harassment? Well, there has to be a reporting system. There has to be a way that for people to report. Um, there has to way there has to way for people to be held accountable. But at the same time, we need to understand that when you're making an accusation about something that is a crime, so it's a crime to sexually harass somebody, then ultimately those processes have to be judicial, because it's the role of the judiciary to be above, mm-hmm. right, the fray, so to speak, and to try and sift evidence. And make make deliver judgment on the basis of evidence, and you know, disp- in a way that's dispassionate. <clears throat> it doesn't always people don't always get what they want, but because it's it's a flawed system. But at the moment, it's the only system we've got. Mm-hmm. So and it is the- unfortunately a system that is unfortunately because of and if you and if you and if you date the history of that judicial system it becomes very easy to see that that judicial system is is cloaked with and has baked in you know systemic racism colonialism and uh, gender and prejudice and, yeah, and yeah. patriarchy but, and patriarchy you know, but, yeah but but fortunately because women can fly an A380 and conduct cardiac surgery we're seeing women who are merging through the legal process, legal system to become judges mm-hmm and so, you know, if you finish, if we if we were to finish up at a time where the bench, uh, in any of our countries, was fifty fifty and reflected the actual, you know, the 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 gender divide in the population that we have, a, rep, a representation, proportional representation of of the judiciary, boy, I, that would go a long way to dismant helping to dismantle. Um, gender discrimination. I'm, I'm not naive. It doesn't do it. it does, there's no one. There's no silver bullet, and there's no utopia. There is essentially just a constant tug of war between competing ideas. Mm-hmm. But um, so I think we have to bear in mind that any system of reporting we have needs to be 
um, needs to have judicial principles in mind. So um, then, the, then I think within the major institutions and organisations, um, we need more women on boards. We need um, same in the same same breath. You know, we need better gender representation on boards. We need better. We need, I think, in the major record companies and the major labels, we need somebody who is responsible directly to the board for man- management of people and culture in particular. Um, you know, somebody who can report on se- on sexual harassment, mm-hmm. on how the company is performing in this area directly to the board. Um, but of course, that only affects the big companies, and they may only they may only employ thirty or forty, fifty people. You know, not even not even. You know, so. Um, but what that does is, if in these major companies there's been, a re- if we were to have across the industry a mandatory code of conduct that had zero tolerance for this behaviour, then you can in- then that gets enforceable inside companies like Sony, like Universal, like Warner. And it gets in, and then boards are made liable for it. And then it gets enforceable at companies like APRA, AMCOS, and PPCA, and the big licensing organisations. And then the next step is, um, when you take when you're applying for grants, government grants, because <coughs> the New Zealand government supports the arts, the Australian government supports the arts. Uh, I'm of the view that you know if you if you Grab people by the wallet; they'll follow. So, if you, um, it's a terribly blunt and um, real politic way of thinking. I'd like to think that we're more nobler, but I just think you know, follow the money. So, if we were to, if we could convince government to tie grants into the arts industries to the zero tolerance mandatory policy conduct policy and then make it in, make it enforceable give it some sting that is we're going to take your money away if there's an incident now that means that um, you know and I actually as a as a as a matter of course by the way I sent these recommendations to every arts minister in Australia in every state government and the arts the federal arts minister and I sent the same recommendations to the Arts Minister of New Zealand and to, and to the Prime Minister because she actually is a Deputy Minister for the Arts as well. What kind of response did you get? I got um, the first email. I, I, I spent a day sending these emails. The first email response I got was from the New Zealand Minister for the Arts mm-hmm. saying, we're thankful for this work. We're deeply grateful for you having done it. Thank you for communicating with us. We're going to communicate this to all of our stakeholders and this document is going to be circulated amongst our senior staff and I've copied Prime Minister Ardern into the communication. So New Zealand, God defend New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> it appears he may be, he may well be defending New Zealand because New Zealand, um, uh, New Zealand sitting right out there on the edge of the Pacific was the first to respond, <laughs> the first email I got back. Yes. Which I thought says a great deal um, about the two different countries. And then gradually then, then gradually, I got um, uh, replies from every arts minister. Some of them came in a couple of months later. And, but I also sent recommendations to do with changing the legislation. So I sent to attorneys general, again, New Zealand, uh, and then their state. Where our system is we have a state 
attorney, attorneys general, who actually are in. I mean, um, crime, crime, the jurisdiction of criminal, criminal, criminality, and criminal behaviour is in the hands of the states in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so each state has its own criminal justice system, um, which is a hangover from the colonial, the you know colonial convict days. Uh, and the federal government does what it can to harmonise those things. And there are some areas of juris- justice that come under federal jurisdiction, but it's not not the same. So, and I heard back from the state attorneys attorneys general saying, "Yeah, we're contemplating legislation, and we're hoping we'll be." And they have various stages of that, i.e., that to do with uh, my suggestions were to do with um, toughening up the um, provisions around sexual harassment, and also um, toughening up the uh, Provisions around um, libel because it's easy for rich, powerful people to sue somebody for libel. So, um, the I got replies from a number of attorneys general concerning um, the fact that they were conscious of the fact that we needed to do something about those defamation laws and. Mm. And that there was, in fact, it was a work in progress. And now, of course, that, that sort of stuff takes a long time to filter its way through. Yeah. Um, and that, but that's the process of government, you know. And it's you, you don't draft legislation in a hurry. Yeah. Although, I mean, there's something very in a in a, in a future world, hopefully one not too far away. Uh, there is something there's something quite powerful about being able to think if we were able to measure in real time the number of those uh, defamation type suits um, being brought against um, a variety of people and if we were able to look at that that use of the use of legislative um, of legislative power as a way of continuing the power cycle or the power imbalance and if we were to be able to measure that and to say on any given base on any given day we are you know we are lessening the curve we are seeing decrease in you know those those kind of um, demonstrations of power, um, maybe that would be a hopeful way of being able to say we are slowly making progress towards changing the environment that allows allows this to happen. Yeah. Um, I'm I would like for you um, when we when we spoke not too long after the after the research was was done, and you weren't sure about what what happened next. You weren't sure about where this would take you. There were some ideas, but some uncertainty. Um, and I and I had asked you a question about um, whether or not you had become an an advocate or an activist in this space as a result of of doing the work. And you mentioned that 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 maybe you weren't sure, and it would you know, really it was a matter of invitation because you weren't sure of your place at the table in those conversations. Um, how has that progressed for you? You mentioned earlier that, that there's another research project now that you're, that you're designing that's, that's across an even broader sector of the industry. Um, you know, can you give me a little insight into, into where you've landed on that? Yep. So, um, so it's, I would say it's, um, fits and starts uh, as an advocate, um, some part there are some uh, people in the um, music industry establishment who don't who are, uh, don't want me to be an advocate, <coughs> um, and uh, and uh, that's on the basis of my gender, right? So it's a um, so in essence it's a it's a it's a sort of a gendered form of discrimination. They're, they're, they hold a view that women should be the one speaking, mm-hmm. and and I and I hold the view that 
as an equalitarian that both women and men should speak on the thing, so we just agree to differ. Mm-hmm. There's um, an importance to allyship, I think, which is which is crucial. Hmm. I don't. I mean, I think absolutely women should be speaking. My, uh, I think at the end of the day, I realised maybe the greatest thing that my research did was that it was that gave women who had been voiceless a voice. So the. I, there was, I mean, my PhD, my actual PhD was so long, largely because it was, it actually was over length, um, largely because um, there was so much. I'd quoted so much of my participants' words. Mm. So there's so much of the. If you read, and if, um, if you want to, if you want to read a PhD, I mean, what fun is that? Uh, but if you read the PhD, you, you once you get past those early chapters, you begin to immediately just hear the voices of. Of the people, I've, I've I have made some really amazing friends in. I've met like as a consequence of doing this work, I've made some really amazing friends in the music industry, and I wonder. It's going to be interesting to see where those relationships go, um, how and how those relationships, how we're able to and, and like-minded people, people who have this same carry the same thing. So it, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. You know, what's the because the the main objective of the music industry is to make money. You never let's not forget it. It's funny that the artists themselves are much more about making the music, mm-hmm. right? Some of the artists that I that I know, are just so they're purists in it. You know, like they're so pure about making music. They're so pure about their their work, their art. But the and and even though that's their primary drive, the rest of the industry is about profiting. You know. Profiting from that. So they're the goose that lays the golden egg, but we're the ones who are going to turn the, that golden egg into something really worthwhile. So you've, we're trying to change an industry that is like a freight train charging down the track because at the end of the day, if the freight train doesn't get to the end of the track, there's no industry. Yeah. So it, it, in, you can't de- in one sense, you can't sort of derail it completely because that defeats the purpose. Well, and re-victimizes people who have already been victimized if you <laughs> rob their livelihood from them. Well, I mean, of the, every dollar that's made in the music industry, twelve cents goes to the artists and the songwriters. Mm. But so what that means is there's not there's eighty eight cents going to all these other people who are gainfully employed and all running businesses, and you know, and you can't you can't disenfranchise those people, you know. And a lot of them, by the way, and you know, and these are what I've actually found. I think it'd be fair to say is it's a, when if I what I said in the report is that. Workplace and sexual harassment are endemic and pervasive, right? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that everybody's an abuser. No. And it doesn't mean – what it means – I actually think, to be honest, and I mean what a lot of women will tell you is I think every woman I've spoken to in the music industry has experienced harassment of some kind. But that doesn't mean that every man is harassing. It means that there's a, a core of people who are. What would be really interesting is how you take those guys out. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Is it that is that possible without disrupting the industry too much? And one of the things, and I didn't recommend this in the report, but one of the things that um, as, is as, a, as, as starting to function is when women come out in public and, and name a person and go, "That person has done this," and then you've seen their instant reaction. They've, I'm taking a break. I'm coming off. I'm going off social media. I'm, you know, I'm, there's been a response. And I wonder whether or not 
I mean, it's it's awfully close to vigilante justice, right? And I'm not, I don't approve of that. But if if people are accused and then they respond that way, and it's highly likely that they're guilty. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, so I think the so I'm sort of circling back to the what do we do? How do we solve this problem? Question really. That's the and the reason for it is. I gave you a couple of answers, but it's it's such a gigantic problem that it's going to require multiple focus from in. And I guess maybe that means for me another. I I'd be more than happy to speak at events. I'm more than happy to speak at events. I'm more than happy to contribute what my understanding is. I'm more than happy to um, do another research project to shed more light. I think we have an enormous amount to do amount that can be done in the educational sphere. I think. Um, if we're going to create, and I mean, this is a this is a position that governments have taken for years in terms of change, policy change when it comes to culture. But if you start in the education system, mm. then what you're doing is you're implanting in people a kind of a set of values that hopefully will become more widespread. They'll always be bastards. I think maybe that should be the subtitle of this. <laughs> Uh, and, <laughs> you know, and transformationist podcast with Jeff Crabtree, and the title is "They'll all be, they'll always be bastards." Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but what you're, but what you're trying to do, what we're trying to do, is create a, um, is create um, ways of systems that actually promote a, a healthier way of living, which means changing systems that are currently unhealthy, mm. and the. Um, and doing, and then obviously, all of my recommendations were to do with trying to change the power balance. And so, I suppose what I'm trying to do, I think knowledge changes the power balance. I think information changes the power balance. I think the fact that I'm the researcher that did this work and I step into a conference that changes the power balance. Because mm-hmm. I'm speaking at a conference, and in the same conference, there's a head of a record label, and then he knows that the, the Crabtree guy is there. You know, maybe. Maybe that changes. Maybe that just that alone changes people's behaviour. Well, it brings the truth into proximity, doesn't it? Which is always yeah. interesting. Uh, I'd like to ask you um, one last question. This season is all about stories of change and the change artists, and and really a focus on how um, it's not just it's not just the change and the transformation itself, but it's the stories of it's the stories that go alongside all of that that actually have um, some importance in terms of our cultural um, history making um, and also how we carry that. And I'm interested to ask you, as somebody who was a gifted storyteller and then has completed a research project which is full of people's stories. Um, tell me, tell me what it means, um, or how it feels, or how you hold and carry um, those stories that were entrusted to you in the research, um, mm. because the because the stories themselves um, form part of the catalyst for what will be long-reaching, far-reaching change. Eventually, it might take a very long time, but in that uh, in that space. In many respects, you are a, you're a guardian of those stories. You're you're a holder of them. Um, talk to me about that. Yes, in fact, actually, the, um, the, the what the PhD is is a series of stories, um, and the thesis reads as a, as a as a one gigantic story, really, albeit a very academic one. In fact, the opening chapter is the story of the music industry from 1999 till now. So, it's a yeah, you're right about the storytelling thing. 
the stories of, uh, as I said to you earlier, I think I'm incredibly grateful to these people. And so the stories for me are, are having, they're incredibly valuable. They're precious to me. And I haven't told all of them. There are actually quite a lot of stories that didn't make it in. And the reason they didn't make it in is there's a 100,000 word word limit. So there are more stories to tell. Um, essentially, I'm, I think the second research project, if it gets if it gets up, will tell more stories. It'll be another vehicle for more storytelling. And I expect that I'll be able to link some of my untold stories from the current, from the first project with the second one. Um, I'm building a training program that introduces people to the concept of workplace and sexual harassment. And those stories inform the, the way the training program runs you know in fact i've actually shot some short videos that are based on stories based on true stories mm. not the actual true story itself that i think that's a step that's a bridge too far but based on the story the thrust of each of these of the, some of these stories um i i think i'll be telling these stories at conferences i think um they've not yet because I, I work in, I work also in writing fiction. They've not yet emerged in my fictional writing, but at some point they will. It's just a little bit too early for me, I think, mm -hmm. to be writing something fictional about this because I just don't know that I could do it. Um, in a, in a, you know, and, and deal with it in a way that you need to deal with it as a writer of fiction. Um, it's like there, are, it's, it's very, tr it's very true that they're alive inside of me, and I can call upon them. At a moment's notice, I did actually already in this podcast, I actually described a couple of, you know, some things that participants had said. Mm. And so I, those, I'm, I call upon those stories as evidence of, of the problem that we face and as, and as indicators, like a landmarks, if you like, if you will, for how to think about them. Um, huh. Um, I, beyond that, I think if, if I, at the moment I think my the, my initial survey of the horizon for me as the, as a as the custodian of those stories is along those lines. You know, another research project, another. But you know, the con speaking at conferences, speaking at these events, mm. and writing articles um, as a means of um, getting the stories told. Amplification. Multiplication. Amplification, multiplication. Mm. Uh, you know, an international travel's returning, so no, doubtless I'll find myself, um, you know, in uh, other locations where I can actually start to tell the stories of what's gone on in Australia and New Zealand as a warning to others. You know? Yeah. And as a, I mean, if it's happening here, it's happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I've, um, I'm, Yes, but I actually, but I think fundamentally, those stories inform the way I teach, and because I'm teaching now in an undergraduate university class, um, so it's a music, it's a class in music business. I teach it uh, on the subject corner, and that, so that in in essence, those stories inform the way that class runs, the way the class is operating, and also that those stories inform the way I teach. I teach in a master's program that in directly informs the way I teach and what I teach in those master's courses. So my students, students of students in my classes are getting 
um, coming face to face with some of those stories. And I make it, I sort of, in the master's program, I deliberately expose those students to parts of my thesis because they're t- I'm teaching them academic writing. So there it's a, it's a sort of a meta level. Mm-hmm. Looking at the academic writing, but they're also confronting the stories. And it's been fascinating sitting in, where it's a virtual class, you know, sitting in a Zoom room with people and then going through little parts of my research and pointing out the academic writing, but then they're also commenting on the actual data itself, you know, the people's, the, the, the accounts that are in the, the, the thesis. Thanks for listening to this episode. My parting thought for you, my transformation challenge is this. What will you do with these stories that you've heard and the stories that you have heard from people around you? And how can you incorporate this into your value system? How can you incorporate this into the way you dismantle power and balance where you find it? How can you be an advocate for people who perhaps don't have voices of their own right now? How can you demonstrate your allyship to people who are suffering as a result? And I'd like to know what you felt and what you thought and how the story moved you. So feel free to email me or let me know, tashatthetransformationist.org. When we come back next week, we have got an incredible interview with um, somebody I really admire, one of the original change artists that I know, uh, Bruce Pilbrow. He makes change happen no matter where he goes, whether you are ready for it or not, and he's learned a lot about being a transformationist along the way. And so we're going to dive into his experience both in corporate and not-for-profit worlds and unpack some lessons about how to facilitate change in the organisations that you exist in. That's it from me. I'm Tash McGill. Thanks for being here.